but before we start, if you have a Bible, you can turn with me to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. It is not our passage today, but I just like it. And so I'm, we're going to start by reading it. So that's how this works. So Romans chapter 12, uh, beginning with chapter 1. Or sorry, verse 1. Chapter 12, verse 1. And friends, this is the word of God. And this is what it reads. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, and by the testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Pray with me. Eternal God, our Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather again around your word. And we just pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would teach us about yourself and your desires and your will. I pray that you would fill us so that we would not uh, conform to the patterns of this world, but that we would be transformed in mind and in heart, that we could be your ambassadors in this hurting world. And I just pray that uh, as we talk about an important topic today, that you would challenge us and encourage us and change us where necessary that we could be more like you. I pray this would be so in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. When I was 22 years old, I was playing in the American Hockey League, and early in this one season, uh, this guy who had been in the NHL for about a decade got sent down to our team. And this guy, he was into everything. And so you name it, he had been involved. And so anyways, for some reason, the coach decided to, that I would be a good roommate for him. And so the first time we're on the road, I'm his roommate. And so uh, anyways, the first night of the road trip, um, and our curfew's about midnight or whatever, and so I show up at the room at midnight, and he's already in bed watching Letterman. And so I just kind of jump in the room and jump in my bed and open up my Bible and start reading. And, and we didn't really know each other at all. And so I'm reading my Bible, and, uh, and he goes, what are you reading? And I go, uh, it's my Bible. And he goes, are you one of those born-again Christians? And I go, yeah. And he goes, I didn't know you guys actually existed. And I go, what? Yeah. We <laughs> do. And he goes, and then he goes, so are you a virgin? And I go, yeah. On purpose? And I go, yeah. He goes, why? And I go, well, the Bible tells it that God's plan for sexual gratification is that it should only come in a lifelong marriage relationship. <laughs> and he just looked at me like he was trying to discern the words that were coming out of my mouth. And, and then he finally, I, I stunned him, I think, because he just went, oh. And, and they didn't bring it up. So I, th I thought it was over. And so anyways, I finished reading, and then I brushed my teeth, and I was getting ready, got my pillow all ready. I'm ready to kind of hit the sack. And then all of a sudden he goes, Kel, I found this great porno channel. You want to watch with me? And I go, uh, I'm good. I'm just going to go to sleep. And he goes, really? And I go, yeah, I'm fine. So anyways, I go to sleep. Again, I'm thinking it's over. And so he wakes me. And so I don't know if it's five or 15 minutes later, whenever, he wakes me. And so he's kind of, Kel, Kel. And I what? And he goes, this is good stuff. You got to watch it with me. And I go, no, really, I'm fine. Why? What's wrong? And I go, listen, I, I just don't think those kind of programs are healthy for me. And he goes, not healthy. It's educational. And I go, really, I'm all good. And so anyway, so I, I roll over and go back to sleep. And my lasting image of him is him just kind of standing over in bed, looking at me with this like perplexed look like, what is wrong with this guy? We were never roommates again. I don't know why. But uh, anyways, this weekend we're continuing on in our teaching series, which we have entitled Sex and Sexuality. 
And perhaps there's no aspect of life that is more countercultural in our Western world than Scripture's view and the parameters around our sexual expression. Last weekend, Clyde kicked off this series by looking at six contemporary myths about sexuality. And just to let you know, these messages are designed so that they're going to be comprehensive and that they flow together and build on one another. And so in case you weren't here last week, you missed Clyde, you can go to our website at www.southviewchurch.com and download the video. And so today, our topic is sexuality and singleness. What does the Bible have to say to those who are single and followers of Christ? Let's begin by quickly reviewing a few guiding principles that Clyde shared last weekend. First, sex and sexuality was God's idea. Our creator could have designed us any way he wanted us, but he chose to make us sexual beings. He chose to make us male and female. And our sexuality is a beautiful gift. It's so beautiful and so powerful, this gift, that for our own health and well-being, he has laid out some clear guidelines around how we are to express it physically. That outside of a biblically defined marriage, God's call on us is to remain celibate in both body and mind. And in this regard, we are all broken. Whether single or married, whether heterosexual or homosexual, we are all broken in regards to our sexuality. We've all done things or thought things or watched things that hasn't added to our health and well-being. And as a result, we're all in need of Christ-redeeming light in this area of our lives. And so some healthy questions for us, some, some really foundational questions that we should be asking ourselves today is, am I willing to submit my sexuality to Christ? Am I willing to trust that God is my well-being in mind? And so today we come to sexuality and singleness. What does the Bible have to say about being single? And honestly, the Bible doesn't have a lot of direct instruction to singles. And there's a couple of reasons for that. First, almost everyone in biblical times was married, generally one that was arranged by their parents. And secondly, even more importantly, secondly, in biblical times, a typical person was married much, much younger than today. In first century Palestine, the average girl got married between the ages of 14 and 16, sometimes as young as 12. Where the average boy got married between 16 and 18, sometimes as young as 14. So in regards to sexuality and singleness, the Bible really was written in a very different world. And even in our own day, marriage patterns have changed so much. Let me just show you some stats here with you. In Canada, the average age of getting married for the first time in 1970 was women were 20 years old and men were 23. In 1990, women were 24 years old and men were 26 years old. And in 2008, women were 29 years old and men were 31 years old. That means in our country, people are marrying on average a decade later than they were just 50 years ago. And this has completely changed our country's demographics. In North America, if you go back to 1900, 95% of adults were married. Only 3% had never been married. Fast forward to the year 2000, only 53% of adults are married, where 27% have never been married. And today, in Canada, 2014, it's essentially the same as that, except instead of 55% married, it's now 45% married, 10% common law. 30% never having been married. 
which means that a large segment of our church community are living with issues and struggles and circumstances never envisioned by the biblical writers in the first century. So where do we go from here? Well, we're going to try to look here at some biblical truths. And the first truth I want us to look at is that singleness, singleness is a valid life option. Singleness is a valid life option. And I want you to hear me say this because I don't think it's always been expressed very clearly, if at all, in the church. You do not have to be married to be complete or whole or to live a rich and meaningful life. Singleness and marriage are equally valid paths for loving others and serving in this world. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. It's a very well-known verse, and I think Clyde even uh, shared it last weekend. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. And this is how it reads. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Perhaps you're like me, you've been to a youth meeting or a church gathering where the speaker used this verse to declare, it's not good to be unmarried. I want you to know that's untrue. This verse is not talking about marriage, it's talking about community. Six times in the creation story, God brings something new to life and we read, and God saw that it was good. But here now, for the first time, God saw something that was not good, Adam's aloneness. And it wasn't just that Adam was feeling alone. It was that Adam had no possibility for community. And so God fills Adam's aloneness by providing him a wife, which then flows into a discussion about marriage and what it means to weave, cleave, and leave, and all that sort of stuff. But verse 18 here is not about marriage. It's about community, that it's not good to be without community. Not all of us will be married. And even those of us who are, there is no guarantee that our spouse will not pass away tomorrow. But we can all have community. We all need a place where we belong, where we have friends and confidence and prayer partners and spiritual encouragers and mentors. We all need community. But we do not need to be married. And Paul verifies this truth in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, if you want to flip over there with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8. Paul writes these very simple words. To the unmarried and widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Paul is saying singleness is a good option. That both marriage and singleness are equally healthy love choices. And I think it would also be helpful to remember that in Scripture, the first Adam was married. But the second Adam, Jesus, was single. And so was John the Baptist. And so was the Apostle Paul. And if we go to the Old Testament, so was Elijah and Elisha. And Jeremiah was commanded by God not to get married. And even Moses didn't get married until he was 40 years old. So even in a culture and an era where almost every healthy adult was married, there are clear exceptions in biblical teachings declaring the legitimacy of singleness. Singleness is a valid life option. Now, I'm sure some of you are out there thinking, okay, Kelly, I I hear you, but didn't Jesus and Paul and those Old Testament prophets, didn't they have the gift of singleness? Great question. So, is there a gift of singleness? And if so, what does it mean? 
What does it mean? I vividly remember being in uh, my high school youth group and a very well-meaning youth leader explaining to us the gift of singleness. And it kind of went along this way. He kind of defined it. This gift of singleness is a spiritual gift that gives you some sort of supernatural empowerment to enable one to live life as a single person. We were told the person with this spiritual gift will live without any desire to get married and without any sexual impulses or temptations. If that describes you, we were told, then you have the gift. If that does not describe you, then you need to get married. And we used to joke, it's the gift that nobody wants, right? It's the gift, nobody wants this gift. (laughs) Who created this gift? Nobody wants it. But here's the thing. There's no biblical support for this idea. There's no biblical support for this idea. Only once in the entire Bible is the word gift used in reference to the unmarried state. And it's used in the verse just before the one we read. So again, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 7. Paul says this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. That's the only verse in Scripture which speaks of this gift of singleness. And I want you to notice that Paul doesn't use the term spiritual gift. Instead, he just refers to the unmarried state as a gift, which, which it is. But then later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul does speak about um, spiritual gifts. And this is what he says, and I want you to notice the difference between the two. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. Down to verse 4. There are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Note here that Paul is defining spiritual gifts as services and activities that are empowered by God. A spiritual gift is a divine enablement that helps us serve and build up one another, build up the body of Christ. For instance, you may have the spiritual gift of encouragement so that you can encourage those who are struggling. Or you may have the spiritual gift of helps, which means you can offer practical acts of service to those who need a hand. Or you may have the the spiritual gift of administration so that you can assist a person or ministry to become more organized and efficient. Those are spiritual gifts. But one's singleness does not directly serve or build up anyone. There is no spiritual gift of singleness. And again, let's read the 1 Corinthians 7 passage here, just in context. This is what Paul says. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each one has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the married and to the widows, I say, it is good for them to remain single as I am. Paul here in this verse is making a comparison here. He's saying that the life stage of unmarriedness is a gift, just like the life stage of being married is also a gift, just in a very different way. So, for those of you here who are single today, and I'm specifically thinking if you're single, you've never been married, for those of you who are single today, do you view your singleness as a gift? Several years ago, there was a study done uh, with 1,300 single Christian adults who had never been married, and they were asked a number of questions, and one of the questions they were asked was, what do you consider the greatest advantage to singleness? And the top three responses of these 1,300 single Christian adults were mobility and freedom, time for interests, and social life. 
mobility and freedom, time for interests, and social life. And in addition to these three, Paul shares a couple of more benefits of being single later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you're wondering why we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 so much, it's because basically the only instructions directly to singles in the Bible are in this one chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 32. Paul says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried man or betrothed woman, unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So in addition to these other gifts of singleness, other advantages, Paul is affirming that being unmarried provides fewer distractions from growing with Christ and also means provides more opportunities to serve others unencumbered. So biblically speaking here, singleness truly is to be considered a gift to those who are single. And you know, I'm not just spouting the company line here. I want you to know, I didn't get married till I was a couple months shy of my 37th birthday. And my sister, who's now in her mid-40s, still is not married and will probably never get married. And I can tell you that neither of us would change a thing. And in fact, just to make sure, I called her this week and I said, Sherry, would you change? And she said, tell them I would not change a thing. So Sherry says, I would not change a thing. (laughs) But as for me, before I was married or even met Jen, uh, as a single person, I went to school in Vancouver. And then I did an internship in Montreal. And then later I did another internship in Northern BC. And then later I did another internship in Southern California. And then I was part of this, this summer camping ministry where I did camps all across North America, 13 different cities. And then, you know, I had time, so I decided to get a master's degree. And then when I graduated master's degree, I decided to celebrate. And me and two friends took a month and we went through the Southern states. And, you know, and through all these, I gained these rich memories and these deep friendships and these learning experiences, most of which I couldn't possibly have had if I had been married. And my sister has an even cooler life than me with with way better stories, which I'll tell another day. But singleness is truly a gift. And so this gift is, and actually, let let me just do a little disclaimer here. If you are here today, as a single parent, I am not talking to you, especially if you're a single parent with young children. I can't, I, I can't imagine the burdens on your schedule. I can't imagine all the responsibilities you bear. And, and so what I'm saying here does not apply to you. And even Clyde and I talked last night about, there's probably gotta be a point where we actually spend an entire weekend just focusing on that demographic because it's so challenging. And so I just want you to know, if you're kind of and going, I'm not feeling those things, I'm not talking to you single parents. But for those singles who have never been married or those singles who are living alone, this gift of singleness is that it offers freedom. It offers freedom to discover yourself and your world and your God. It offers you the freedom to serve in a variety of ways. It offers you the freedom to develop friendships with a variety of people. And please know, and me saying all this, I'm not inferring anything derogatory about marriage. Marriage, too, is a wonderful gift, and I I love being married to Jen. 
but I just get so saddened when I talk to so many people who think that they won't be happy until they're married, who have kind of put their lives on hold until they meet someone, who feel somehow that they are second-class citizens, second-class lives. And to them, I want to say no. Singleness is not just a transitional state that we need to endure until we get to this ultimate destination of marriage. Singleness is a gift. And so for those of you who are single here, are you taking advantage of your gift? Now, having said all that, I want to be clear that I, I do recognize that there are also many challenges that come with being single. And, and though I mostly enjoyed being single very much, it wasn't like every day was a party. There were difficult periods where I struggled, where I struggled wondering, where do I fit in in life? Where I wondered, you know, what does my future hold? Because I'm not attached to anyone. You know, where I wondered if I was missing out. And earlier I told you about this study done with the 1,300 single Christian adults. Another one of the questions they were asked was, what is the greatest disadvantage to being single? What's the greatest disadvantage? And the top two answers were loneliness and restrictions on sex life. Loneliness and restrictions on sex life, which I think we can understand. And I think that these two, at least at some level, are interconnected. So let me just start with restrictions on one's sex life. Again, to review, the Bible teaches that outside of marriage, God's call on us is that we remain celibate. And let me just expand on this a little bit. For I've often had young adults come to me and go, okay, you know, Kelly, I, I, it's clear that the Bible says that adultery is wrong. But, but it, it doesn't seem to say hardly anything about premarital sex. Are you sure that's prohibited too? And the short answer is yes. Yes, it's prohibited. One of the reasons that we don't hear much or read much here about premarital sex is that almost everyone was married by age 16. So it really wasn't, you know, something that needed to be emphasized that much. It wasn't a struggle by general society. And also, as you, as you read throughout Scripture, the overarching principle is that sexual fulfillment is only to be found in marriage. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. There's a great little nugget here in verse 4, a very helpful verse. Hebrews 13 verse 4 reads this way. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. I want you to note here there's a distinction being made between adultery and other kinds of sexual immorality. Okay, so adultery is wrong, but also other kinds of sexual immorality are wrong. And the word that's translated here, sexual immorality, is pornos, which has the same root word as pornea, from which we get the English word pornography. And these Greek words refer to all sexual immorality, referred to premarital sex, incest, prostitution, kind of the, the whole gamut. And so here it's saying adultery is wrong, all these other things are wrong, because biblically, biblically speaking, God's call is that we are to remain celibate unless we're married. And the reason for this is that sexual intercourse is a life-uniting act. It's a spiritual experience which joins two people in a physical, emotional, and spiritual union. So that if people engage in this life-uniting act without a life-uniting intent, it wounds one's inner spirit. Which is why cohabitating can be so harmful to a couple's long-term health. The stats around living together before marriage are sobering. 
couples who marry after living together are 50% more likely to get a divorce. Couples who live or marry after living together are 50% more likely to divorce than those who did not. And, and listen, I can understand the logic of cohabitation. I mean, it seems, it seems like a good way to learn about a potential spouse. It seems like it would be a good way to work out whatever issues there are before tying the knot. But almost every study ever done on this tells us that couples who cohabitate have a greater likelihood of divorce, have lower levels of marital satisfaction, and have lower levels of male commitment to their spouse. And all the researchers are saying almost the same thing. I, I could have just picked out any quote I want. I picked out one by Linda Waite, sociologist from University of Chicago. This is what she writes. In fact, every research project that's ever looked at the stability of marriages that were preceded by cohabitation has found that people who lived together before they got married are significantly more likely to divorce later. It's true in Canada. It's true in Sweden. It's true in the United States. It's true wherever we've looked. Though the Bible was written thousands of years ago, its instruction about our sexuality is still true. For God created our sexuality, and his guidelines are for our health and well-being. Now, I recognize that these are difficult words, and for some of you, it may be very difficult instruction. And I think probably that sexual purity would have been difficult in any generation, but it seems especially so today, for our culture has so glorified sex. It portrays it as a need that we can't live without. So let's just be clear here. Sex is a drive, not a need. We need oxygen. We need water. We need food. We need sleep. Sexual gratification is optional. We don't need it. John Stott writes, Jesus our Lord never married or experienced sexual intercourse, yet he was and is the perfect model of humanness. His example teaches us that it is perfectly possible to be single, celibate, and human at the same time. Sex is not a need, and our primary identity is not based on our sexuality. Yet I remember being single in my 30s, and because of the way sex is portrayed on TV and in the movies and in the media, it always made me feel that I was, I was missing out on this most central aspect of life. But that's not true. Now, I want to be clear here. I love being married to Jen. And sex is a wonderful gift that we get to share together that repeatedly rebonds us in marital affection and connectedness. But sexual fulfillment is not the centerpiece of our lives. It's not even the most important thing in our marriage. It's just this widely believed lie in our culture. And when you combine these lies with the loneliness that many single people feel, poor choices are often the result. And so let me just say a few words here about loneliness. And first of all, I understand what it means to be single and lonely. And I know that many singles you know, have these deep, deep-seated feelings of loneliness, and I understand that. But I think it would be helpful for us to make a clear distinction here. Loneliness is not aloneness. Loneliness is not aloneness. They are not the same thing. Aloneness is the physical state of being separated from other people. Loneliness is the emotional state of feeling disconnected from other people. They're very different. For loneliness is not directly dependent on the presence of people. One can be in the middle of a large group of people and feel very lonely. Or one can be all alone 
and not feel lonely at all. And similarly, I think it's important to recognize that one's marital status does not cause loneliness. Many married people are lonely. Many single people are not. So the real question for us all is, what is causing the emptiness I feel inside? A couple years ago, uh, there was a young woman that was in my office, uh, and kind of, I was kind of counseling her, I guess, and so... And she was just kind of pouring out her life and all her hurts and all the things that were disappointing about life. And she was just sobbing, just sobbing uh, in my office. And at the core, the core issue really was that she hated being single and she felt oh so lonely. And so she's just sobbing away. And in the midst of sobs, all of a sudden she just cries out, how long is God going to make me wait for a husband? She was 18. <laughs> and, and that sounds bad, but... She's not the only one. I've had 25-year-olds and 35-year-olds and 45-year-olds say the same thing in my office. And I've counseled many, many people, men and women, who have all said to me, my life will be happy when I'm married. My life will be happy when I'm married. And that's not true. As a counselor, I can tell you, if you are unhappy single, you will probably be unhappy married. Marriage does not solve one's emptiness. It exposes it. And the loneliest place in the world is an unhappy marriage. So if you are here today and you think that a spouse or a new spouse will suddenly make everything all better, you're fooling yourself. No one human being with all their sins and all their struggles and all their idiosyncrasies can ever meet all your needs. So what's the solution? How do we solve our loneliness? How do we fight against culture's expectations and our, and our physical urges? And you know, honestly, those are questions that would take another whole weekend to answer. But at least part of the solution, at least part of the solution is community, is finding true community in the church and building deep and loving friendships. I was reminded of a stat that I, I think I shared here a few years ago, and I just reread it this last week. And it said that in North America, 24% of all adults don't have a single person in their lives who, with whom they can confide or tell how things are really going. And in addition to that, another 49% don't have three people in their lives with whom they can confide. That means almost three quarters of North American adults don't have three real friends. That's not what we were created for. We were designed to live life differently. We were designed to need to be in community, to be in loving relationships. Now, I've got to be honest with you. As one who was single well into his 30s, the church often does not make singles feel very welcome. I once went to a church that proudly proclaimed itself, we are a family-based church. We are a family-based church, which is great, except the 30% of us who are single were saying, well, what about us? Like, do we fit in here? Is there a place for us here? I remember uh, when I was playing hockey, uh, one year we had this team Christmas party. So there's 24 guys on the team, and uh, at the Christmas party, there was 47 people. The other 23 guys all had a wife, a girlfriend, a significant other, and me. So I was the only one there alone. But here's the thing, I never felt alone there. Not once did I feel out of place. Not once was I made to feel like a third wheeler that I didn't belong. 
but I have felt that way as a single in the church. Why is that? And you know, as a pastor, I've seen some disappointing trends. I often see, not always, but often see young couples get married and then just ditch all their single friends. Our friendship shouldn't be based on our marital status. And I've also seen, when I used to be small groups pastor here about five years ago, and I used to regularly get calls, and some people call and they go, yeah, I'm looking for a small group with, with just other young couples. Or uh, I'm looking for a small group with, with other young families, you know, with kids ages, you know, five to 10. And, and, and listen, I get it. I totally get it. It totally makes sense to want to connect, you know, with other people in the same life stage. And so, and so I totally understand that. But the result was that of the 25 or 30 small groups that we had in the church at the time, there was really only three that were open to having single adults. And so what would happen is, you know, a 30-year-old or 40-year-old single adult would phone me and say, do you have anything for me? And I go, honestly, no. And then often that person would go to another church to find community. I mean, look around. Statistically, 30% of Canadians have never been married. Does that, is that demographic kind of represented here in our gatherings? And I, and I think it's too bad because in my experiences, having unattached friends, they're the best friends. They make the best friends. And I'll tell you why. Because after you put the kids to bed, they can come on over. And then you play games and you watch movies and you build relationships and it's great. And so are we willing to build relationships with one another? Are we willing to invest in each other's lives? Are we willing to grow true community with others, whether single or married? In a few moments, we're going to come to the table. Because the truth is, regardless of our marital status, regardless of whether we have community or don't have community, ultimately only God, through the love of Jesus Christ, can fully meet our needs. And so we come to this table not just to remember, not just to remember, but to experience the reality that Christ alone is the one who can nourish us and fill us and meet our needs today. And so at this time, I'm just going to pray, and then I'm going to release to Fernando at Mosaic, and then we're going to partake of the table. So let's pray together. Eternal God, our Father, I just want to pray for those um, here in our gathering who are struggling, who maybe they're single here and they felt wounded or left alone. Or maybe they're single parents and they feel overwhelmed. Or maybe they're, they're married and they're just, they're hurting. And Father, I just pray that this will be a place where all of us, regardless of where we're at, whatever life stage, that we could find true community, that we could find deep and loving friendships, and that we could encourage and support and point one another to the love of the cross. And so thank you, Jesus, for dying, not just for our sins, but for making us whole and for making us one family and for making us followers of you. And so as we remember and receive from you, encourage our hearts and renew our conviction that we are a family birthed in community and that you are the God who heals all.
So heal our hearts, I pray. In Christ's name, amen.